while police photographing our license plate. What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Good afternoon and thank you for joining us on the Reasonable Voices talk news radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando. And our reasonable voice today is Peter Russolo. First of all, Peter, how are you, and welcome to the show. I'm very well, thank you, Marcello, and thank you for having me on. It's my pleasure, absolutely. First of all, Peter Russolo received a BA as summa cum laude at Yale University and a JD at Harvard Law School. Currently, he's an op-ed columnist, Peter's Take, at ARLnow.com. He's also a board member uh, of Together Virginia PAC, and this new PAC is dedicated to fostering uh, conversations among Virginians with a particular focus on rural voters. First of all, let's start off with some of the immediate stuff that's going on in Northern Virginia, and Arlington, uh, Virginia particularly. Unlike the Sports Commission and the Park Recreation Commission, I believe arts and politics is a marriage that deserves to be nurtured. I think it has such a positive, both things have can have a very positive effect and shouldn't be feared. What's happening in uh, with the arts uh, situation in Arlington, Virginia, that involves you? Well, I uh, actually wrote a column about that uh, this past week, and the the thrust of the column really was that there are a lot of things that are going on in the arts, and we have a wonderful uh, group of artists here in Arlington and many cultural resources, but I think that our government has not been clear enough about what policies it would like to pursue uh, to help the public support the arts and what standards it's going to apply to help foster them using public dollars. And so what I recommended really was that uh, we try to pull together a lot of uh, different statements we've made about the arts, make it more clear to the average citizen what our policies are, and then um, have a, a public process where we get the public involved in commenting on on a proposed way to proceed and i used as an example a recent cultural plan adopted in boston 
that uh, I thought uh, looked like a good model for both uh, how to support the arts and how to get the public to participate and give their views on which things are important. Mm, excellent. And when you say government, are you speaking of Richmond or more locally in Arlington itself? I really was speaking about more locally in Arlington itself, although there are some resources uh, at the state level in Virginia and uh, some at the federal level that sometimes are available to supplement what we could do locally. But the, the real focus was on having a more clear, coherent picture of how, how we could best support the arts in Arlington. Okay, excellent. I think I mentioned already you were a board member of the Together Virginia PAC, and it's a relatively new PAC, and a couple of political women I know, Jane Dittmar, who ran for Congress, and Leslie Coburn, who is running for Congress now, both from the 5th District of Virginia, and both stressing there are a lot of areas, rural areas, where not only certain cable TV stations are not broadcast, but online uh, internet is not available. It just makes me think, no wonder uh, people get angry and feel forgotten. So tell us, since there is this particular focus, to quote you, on rural voters, how do you identify and nurture and advise Democratic candidates and, and Democrats and the Democratic Party nationally and locally? How do you get them to understand there's more to America than the West and East Coast? Well, that certainly is our focus and our goal. Um, this PAC was founded uh, in January of last year, a year ago, mm -hmm. through the leadership of Stacy Snyder, who is uh, currently an Arlington resident and a prominent, strong Democrat. But she also grew up in, in rural Virginia. And... Um, Together with Stacy, we have uh, two other uh, board members, Carter Turner and V. Fry, who also have a particular focus on trying to develop um, the Democratic Party in rural areas of the state. And I think all of us were motivated in particular by what we perceived as Donald Trump's uh, substantial victory um, in 2016 in rural areas, and although he didn't carry the state of Virginia in 2016, he did carry most, if not all, of the rural counties in the state. Yes. So one of the things that, that we've perceived is that for one reason or another, uh, people in rural areas in Virginia have... Uh, lost faith and lost trust that they used to have in the Democratic Party. Mm. And we were asking ourselves, well, why is that? And what could we do to get that faith back and restore it? And so the goal of the PAC really is that by fostering a dialogue between Democrats who live in rural areas of the state and Democrats who live in other parts of the state, like where I do in Northern Virginia mm -hmm. and where Stacy does, we could have a dialogue back and forth on these subjects and, and try very hard to, to listen to what rural voters say really matters to them 
rather than just preaching to them about what we think they should care about. Yes. You are so right about that because this this ha- didn't just, I don't believe, this didn't just happen in 2016. It's just that tr- Trump's victory, as you say, in 2016 certainly threw a bucket of cold water in all our faces because, uh, I mean, I was up until 2 a.m. being shocked by, you know, every every state coming in and realizing something has been going on because even in the Commonwealth of Virginia, which I'm not an expert, I live in D.C. and New York as, as well, but I do have a home in Charlottesville, Virginia, or west of it anyway, and I find uh, when I covered as a news person the elections that Charlottesville, Virginia, and Northern Virginia, that's you and me now, tend to vote democratically, but almost everywhere else in Virginia uh, has been voting quite the opposite. So it seems it got a a little on steroids, but as you say, Trump did not carry the Commonwealth. So how how do you help voters understand uh, how the values of Democrats, for instance, can benefit their lives? And, and as I asked earlier, how do you get the Democratic Party to understand that? Well, the, the first part is, as I said, by listening to what they care about mm. and trying to figure out ways to um, provide solutions to the things that they really care about. And yes. so when last year when we went about uh, looking for uh, particular candidates for the House of Delegates in Virginia to support. Th- that's what we concentrated on, and, and we last year we supported uh, three candidates uh, for the House of Delegates who were running in rural Virginia. Yes. One of them was Chris Hurst, yes. who uh, won his election, and the other two were Angela Lynn, who was running in in the in a district uh, in the fifth congressional district uh, that's not too far away from Charlottesville, mm-hmm. but primarily rural areas outside of Charlottesville. And the other was Juna Osborne, who was running in the in a district a delegate district that crosses the fifth and sixth congressional districts. And yes. What we did in each case is we we provided money, we provided technical support to help them. And we uh, also uh, basically tried to tap voters in the districts, the delegate districts in which they were running, and listen to what they cared about. And you mentioned earlier uh, in our interview uh, the problem of getting internet access and and broadband access in rural areas, uh, which is very difficult in some of them. Mm. And if you, uh, you know, if you want to run any kind of a small business, out of your home, for instance, and you don't have uh, access to uh, rural broadband, well then uh, you're really handicapped in getting a business started. So that was an example of something that we we listened very carefully to. And and we tried again, as I said, not to dictate to people a list of things that we thought they absolutely should believe in or support, but Mm -hmm. instead, listen to what what they cared about. You know, I don't live full-time in, in Virginia, but I've always loved the state. And when I, I chose to to get involved more politically than, than doing television, I chose Virginia. And because I always thought it was a beautiful state, always loved it, and traveled here for the historical sites, etc., 
But I'm wondering, do you see a danger? Well, let's put it this way. Media is saying that millennials are running from the Republican Party. Are there Democrats who are still thinking, as some of my friends are, there are progressives and there are the, and there's the Democratic Party, uh, whether it's whether they call them uh, uh, Bernie or die or bust or whatever. Is there a danger, you think, that the, the Democrats will split themselves and then, rather than as a whole, welcome these millennials as well as rural voters? Yes, I mean, I think there's a danger uh, that the Democratic Party won't be welcoming enough to, to various different kinds of groups. And yes. rural voters and millennials are certainly two of those. So really, I think the philosophy of our uh, Together Virginia PAC is really that we have to be uh, to sort of uh, retrieve a once more popular phrase, a big tent. Yes. We, we have to be welcoming to different points of view that uh, aren't always 100% in agreement, but, but which, uh, if we can associate them with the Democratic Party uh, and we can show people that we have ideas that will solve the problems that they care about. Yes. Then, um, if we can show that first, then the political benefits will come later. But if we just tell them um, what we think they need to do, or uh, in, in a didactic way, that's that's just not going to work out so well. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, for example. In the 9th Congressional District in Virginia, we had Democrats representing that, that area in Congress for many years. Mm -hmm. um, but in 2010, we lost that seat and we still don't have it. So it's not that there aren't a lot of people there who were willing to support Democrats before. Yes. It's that um, they lost faith mm -hmm. in the party and uh, they need to get it back. And with respect to millennials, I think similarly, a lot of millennials um, don't like to be preached to. Mm -hmm. They don't like to be told, you know, a long, given a long list of things that they have to do or believe in mm -hmm. in order to be Democrats. Mm -hmm. uh, they basically um, want to believe that it's worth their while, and they don't feel that... Uh, they must do it necessarily. So in 2017 in Virginia, I think we saw uh, a lot of support uh, for Democratic candidates from millennials who yes. previously really hadn't been involved in the Democratic Party at all, but were so horrified yes. by uh, what they saw at the national level that they uh, pledged to themselves that they were going to get involved basically to save the country. Yes. Absolutely. And I think that is terrific on their part. I'm just with you that we, older Democrats, uh, have to convince our generation of Democrats and the current Democratic Party that we need to open our arms to this because they're, uh, millennials or anyone else being angry about something, that passion is great, but it, it will fizzle if it isn't given a positive for something without preaching. You're absolutely right. Your thoughts? Yes, I agree with that. Without preaching, we're, we have to stand for something. Yes. We can't just be against Trump. The something that we have to stand for has to be something that resonates, and it has to resonate with different age groups and different ethnic backgrounds and different religious backgrounds. 
and it has to be um, perceived and actually be positive and forward-looking and not sort of clinging to past uh, rigid ideology. Mm-hmm. Yes, as you say, the, the old term, a big tent, has got to come back. Well, we're going to take a short break. My guest today is the ever-informative and politically active and artistic supporter, Peter Russolo. And uh, when we come back, we're going to talk a little more. Well, we're going to talk about everything we've been talking about, but we may include also ARLnow.com and what he's doing there and how best to build a democratic bench in our rural areas. We are both particularly interested in reaching out to people outside the big cities and trying to earn their trust and their faith again. Stay with us. We'll be right back. And now, enjoy Watchfire Music, featuring vocal artist Julia Wade singing Beautiful from her new CD, Sunday Morning. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. Yes, the Lord is greatly to be praised. Honor and majesty are before him. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices Talk Radio Show. My Reasonable Voice guest today is Peter Russolo. We introduced him in the last segment, so I'll just touch on a bit. He's op-ed columnist, Peter's Take. We want to talk a bit about that in this segment, arlnow.com. But we have been talking about, first of all, Arlington, Virginia, Northern Virginia, and the 5th District of Virginia, and all of the Commonwealth, and how... Rural voters in particular, and and millennials that I brought up, these are at least two of the groups, there are more. Each group, rural voters, millennial voters, all voters, know what they feel they need, they want. They want a government that responds to that. So I guess the first lesson of the day is that we have to listen, and that's what Peter's been saying. So Peter, with that listening in mind, how do we build a democratic bench in our rural areas? Uh, maybe you better explain that for those people who don't know the sports term. Sure, uh, but that's a critical term because in a lot of these rural areas, the Democratic Party as an organized group 
the way we know it in other parts of the state and the more urban areas of the state. In, in many of these rural areas, either there is no Democratic organized party at all, mm. or if there is, it is a party that doesn't have too many participants and is in desperate need of building a bench. Yes. And so in our first year at Together Virginia PAC, what we tried to do and what we did do in several instances is to reach out to uh, the local Democratic Party chair in a particular rural county mm -hmm. and offer um, the ability to provide uh, technical advice on how to organize. In certain cases, we provided money to enable the local party to, for instance, purchase um, yard signs mm. and other campaign literature, which mm. they didn't otherwise have the money to, to buy, sure. so that they could um, basically show the flag, show the Democratic flag in an area that hadn't seen much of it. Sure. And we basically volunteered ourselves as, as sounding boards to help uh, answer some some questions that you, you wouldn't get in other parts of the state because there was a lot more organization. And in, in terms of building the candidate bench, what we've uh, begun to do in our first year and hope we can do again is to um, also support selective candidates for local offices like school board and county board mm -hmm. of supervisors so that they get the experience of running and in some cases winning mm -hmm. uh, election to those offices so they get uh, opportunities to get some visibility and get some accomplishments which then may enable them to run for higher office later on. Mm. You know, in my lifetime, uh, and, and my adult lifetime, I should be clear, um, I've seen the Commonwealth of Virginia go from a bright red to pretty much purple for a good while, and and then uh, uh, Barack Obama came in, and, and the purple, you know, became blue, and it seems to be getting bluer, but I just don't think we can take anything for granted. How do you address that at Together Virginia PAC? We, you know, we have a, a presidential candidate in 2016, and our current president, who's been trying to exploit that divisiveness at every turn. We try to counter that basically by looking at what the reasons are uh, why rural voters may have become alienated from the Democratic Party, and um, through our dialogues uh, w with rural voters and rural residents and by making it clear that we're interested in listening to them rather than preaching, uh, we hope to get them to uh, trust us mm -hmm. uh, more than they might have trusted others in the past uh, to do. And that, that from the trust will come some degree of confidence and respect and restoring the respectability of, of the Democrats and, Dem and the Democratic Party. You know, uh, and I agree with everything you're saying, this, but let, let's, let's bring the census and gerrymandering and geography, uh, political geography, into this. If it's true, as I often hear, and I'm sure you have too, that more and more Democrats are moving to and living in cities, large cities, 
and more and more Republicans are moving away from large cities into rural areas. Is it more than politics that's dividing us, and can we overcome? Uh, well, gerrymandering, I think, is on maybe not its last leg, but at least every time people learn about uh, gerrymandering, they get very upset about it, and that includes Republicans and independents and Democrats. What are your thoughts? Gerrymandering, the census, uh, the geography of where uh, political views live, and uh, how, do, how do we address that? How does how that a part of the rebuilding connection, bridging the urban and rural divide, I guess? Well, let's focus first on gerrymandering. I think now that the Democratic Party here in Virginia is in a much better position uh, to address uh, the problems of gerrymandering than we were prior to the last census in 2010. Mm. Uh, at that time, uh, we um, were in a situation where we didn't, we did not hold the governorship, uh, and we certainly uh, were outnumbered heavily in the House of Delegates in Virginia, yes. and we we lost control of the Senate, and so therefore, we lost control of uh, basically the tools that were needed under a partisan uh, redistricting system, and that's resulted in the districts we have now and are still going to have um, for a couple more years. But, mm. but in contrast to that period, now we hold the governorship. We have a much higher number of Democrats in, in the House of Delegates. And we've uh, aligned ourselves with a prominent uh, movement to support nonpartisan redistricting in the state, the, yes. the so-called One Virginia Movement. Yes. There are also some uh, some promising signs in the courts that there may be some remedies on the redistricting front. So I think things are looking more optimistic that we'll have fairer districts that are not drawn for partisan purposes. And then, but the other half of it is uh, we just have to win the battle of ideas yes. with uh, the other party so that people will uh, even with uh, a more fair districting system, just have more respect and be more likely to vote for our candidates than the Republican candidates. Since we're speaking about winning the battles of, of ideas and ideals, well, let's get a little pragmatic. I know we've touched on this, uh, but let's really dig in now. Rural voters, what are the issues that you hear? Are the the issues for rural voters, because it's a very different, uh, it's a very different playing field. We've mentioned one, which is the lack of uh, broadband access, yes. but there's certainly others. Uh, most rural areas are losing jobs. Mm. They're losing population. They don't have access to the same degree to to affordable health care. Yes. Uh, they're they they losing hospitals that are leaving because the population is declining and the hospitals can't make enough money. So because of all of those, which I guess I could call pathologies, mm -hmm. um, that has led to a huge increase in uh, the use of opioids and other drugs. Yes. So the the concerns really, look in, you know, in things like losing population, 
are, are a very stark contrast to what we face here, like in Arlington, Virginia, where we're having an exploding school population. Yes. And in, in these rural counties, they're losing students. They face the possibility of having to close schools. They don't have enough money uh, to run the school system. So those are the kinds of problems that they're facing, which have to be dealt with by bringing jobs back. Mm -hmm. And we can't bring them back by promises like Mr. Trump's to, uh, you know, to bring the coal industry back to life. That's just not going to happen. Exactly. In some cases, it, it may be possible to bring a different kind of manufacturing job, but actually, you know, the future in the 21st century is much more likely to be in other kinds of uh, higher technology jobs which require training and education that oftentimes hasn't been available. So one initiative I know Governor Northam is uh, supportive of is to increase uh, the potential for more higher education opportunities uh, in rural areas. Those are the kinds of differences. The differences are really quite different from from what we have in in the more urban areas of the state. Yes, because much of what you mentioned, even though opiate crisis includes cities, but what we're talking about here and what you're telling us is... um, is something that city dwellers, I mean, I've lived in New York City most of my life, and it just a lot of this never occurred to me. It never occurred to me that everyone didn't have broadband uh, expansion or broadband internet quality, or for that matter, um, friends from other areas of the country tell me, as I think I mentioned earlier, that... Um, there are uh, cable television that sometimes is not available beyond Fox. So what are people to think if they only get one side of the story? So that comes back to, as I always feel, education is the first step in everything. But what do you say? Let's talk about education. But also, what do you say to a coal miner who has uh, his entire family uh, for generations has been in coal mining. You and I know that Trump is lying when he says he's going to bring back the coal business because, it, it well, the coal mining companies don't even want that. They're off trying to, you know, put their money in other places so they're ready. But what do you say to a farmer who has, you know, seen it all and corporate farms are taking over and still he's holding on and and the coal miner and the other small businesses uh, in uh, in in the rural areas. How what can you say to them when they say we want to do what we've our family's always done? Well, I think the first thing you have to say is to be very respectful of the family tradition yes. that you just described, whether it's the family farm or the family with generations of coal miners. You can't say, as, as unfortunately some of our Democratic candidates in the past have said, something that, that denigrates the culture and mm. the family and the, the history that people have had. It, mm-hmm. it, it, is, it just is, is the worst possible thing to do. Yes. You have to start out by showing that you appreciate that culture, that you honor that culture, even though it may not be your own. And then you have to, having established that sense of uh, connection with, with the voter or the family, then you have to look them in the eye and have to say, honestly, 
we just don't see the prospect that this uh, this particular form of employment is going to continue for very much longer, if mm. if any longer. But here are the things that we we're going to do to help you transition to something else. And you know, the transition is going to be a lot easier if somebody is uh, 18 or 20 years old than it is if they're 55. Yes. And in the case of, of the latter, the older person, um, realistically, it may be very hard to, you know, to provide something um, that, that somebody's not trained for. So you're going to have to look for um, some kind of potential for a home-based business if you can give them enough training to, to get into it or to uh, give them the, the internet access that they would have to have. But you can't make a promise that, that you you know you're not going to be able to keep. But, but I certainly would, would stress the importance of, of honoring and revering the yes. traditions that they have and not saying anything that would suggest that you don't revere those things. Exactly. One quick story about my youth that uh, hopefully will help all the Democrats listening in particular, uh, whether they're running for office or not. When I was in my first year at the Peabody Conservatory of Music living in Baltimore, Maryland, I fell in love with a with a young Virginia lady. I was driving back and forth, uh, but her father would not let me take her out unless I helped her do her chores on the farm, which in, in many cases was the picking of tobacco. If you've never done that, it's quite an experience for a city boy, let me tell you. And I learned how to do that and climb up the, uh, the railings in the barns and hang the leaves and whatever. But my point is, experiencing that is a large part of why I so agree with what you're saying, Peter, and why I think all Americans need to have empathy for all other Americans, whatever their walk of life and anything else. Okay, all right. What's your program plan for Together Virginia PAC uh, for 2018? What's up? What's next? Well, what we'd like to do is to continue and expand what our program was in 2017, which is, uh, as, as I've described, to to have uh, foster ways to uh, have a dialogue between people who live in the rural areas of Virginia and people who live in the more urban areas. Mm -hmm. I'd encourage uh, people listening to your show to uh, go on to our website at togethervapac.org, uh, check out uh, our a website as we develop during the year. You can send us a message uh, with suggestions and ideas. We'll be looking to identify uh, one or more uh, congressional candidates, Democratic candidates who are uh, going to try and hopefully in some cases successfully to unseat incumbent Republican congressional candidates in Virginia. Um, if you go to the website, you'll be able to uh, uh, get involved in one or more of those campaigns that we're going to focus on. I mean, we're uh, we're in our second year. Mm -hmm. We're a startup. We're going to not try to bite off more than we can chew. We'd rather 
you know, concentrate our resources on a smaller number of races, but I'm hoping that anybody listening to this message who'd like to learn more or get involved will go to our website and, and connect with us directly, and then we can have a dialogue with them about how they could best get involved. Excellent. We're going to come back to that website, of course, to remind people at the end, but just quickly, if you uh, can you tell us a little more about ARLnow.com? And how, yes, yeah. uh, sure. Um, that's a local uh, news blog that started up in Arlington in 2010, and uh, it's uh, proven to be a remarkable sort of startup success story, as many other uh, news sources uh, over that over the last seven years uh, in Virginia and elsewhere have dried up. Mm-hmm. Uh, ARL. Uh, now.com has thrived and uh, they they reached out to me uh, at the end of 2012 and asked me if I would do a uh, weekly uh, column on politics and government in Arlington and in Virginia as a whole and I agreed to do that so I've been doing it now for about five years mm. and I've watched them um, grow and develop and it's been a great experience to watch this uh, success story here. Fantastic. And uh, just two more questions. <laughs> uh, the we Most of us know, of course, you watch the news, that um, the number of Democrats and Republicans in the House of Delegates in Richmond, Virginia, was recently decided by the flip of a coin. How does that leave, uh, and, and the Republican candidate won? So we do not have a majority in the House of Delegates, but we do have a wonderful, I believe, very in touch with the people, uh, governor coming in and uh, attorney general. Uh, how then does do you see the House of Delegates uh, being able to uh, help and do all the things you've been talking about without having a majority in the House? Well, I think that there, there are two different ways to look at it. We now have 49 delegates instead of 34 exactly. out of 100. That's a tremendous difference, and it affects uh, the way things are run in a lot of ways. It means, for example, or it has meant so far, in contrast to last year's session, one of the things I've noticed is the Republican delegates, those who are left, have uh, almost entirely avoided the introduction of uh, hot-button, terribly controversial issues Mm. about gender identity and bathroom bills and Mm. some of the horrible bills that they had introduced a year ago. Those are almost all gone. And the dynamics of a chamber where you have 49 Democrats instead of 34, it changes a lot of things. It enables a lot of these new delegates to form uh, relationships and partnerships with not only their fellow Democrats, but with Republicans. So yes. when you combine that with a governor like Governor Northam, yes. who is interested in not a hyper-partisan approach to governing, I think that the prospect is that even without a majority, if we work with uh, just a small number of uh, more moderate, reasonable Republicans, we can get some things passed. One area that I'm very hopeful about, uh, I'm going to write a column about this uh, this coming week, is the Medicaid expansion. Yes. Uh, We've We've just not been able to get any traction in that on that over four or five years. But I think now, 
we may not get everything we want, mm-hmm. but I think if we're reasonable about it, we can really improve the healthcare situation for people under that program, particularly in the rural counties of the state. And that's what I'm hoping that will happen, that we, we reach out to the reasonable Republicans and work with them and get something that's much better than what we have now. And that's a bridge certainly worth building. And, and, and if Republicans and Democrats build that bridge together, uh, it will certainly go a long way to healing the, the, the divisiveness between urban and rural. And, well, it's a beautiful thing. And I, I know Together Virginia, PAC.org is helping. That's uh, Together, V-A-P-A-C dot org. What do you want us to remember from this conversation, Peter, and what you most want us to be thinking about in the days and weeks and months to come after hearing this podcast? I'd like you to be thinking about uh, having a Democratic Party that's a big tent party that can accommodate different points of view, that doesn't always have to be 100% ideologically pure, Mm. but that has a platform and a program for all different kinds of people from all backgrounds and all ages, that will really help solve people's problems, not just preach to them, and that will bridge many of the kinds of divides that we have between urban and rural, rich and poor, black and white, and uh, a a program that will inspire and help people throughout the Commonwealth. Thank you. Peter Russolo, thank you so very much for being on the Reasonable Voices Talk Radio Show. We wish you and Together Virginia all the best success, okay? Thank you. Bye now. And now, enjoy Watchfire Music featuring vocal artist Jenny Burton singing Tear Down the House from Is Anybody Listening? Marcello Rolando, The Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. American Beauty and the Beasts
Beware media fixating public on bull in a China shop gesticulating middle finger to world community risks re-elections of America's historic beasts. Yet, while gerrymandering and Donald Trump dispel decency, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Bear Tavern fifth graders mirror American beauty. That our 45th isn't a presidential fit preferred by most is less horrific than allowing him to enter us in a race against ourselves, denigrating the educational achievements of Africans, Haitians whose courageous ancestors helped transfer us from European tyranny to our land of the free exceptionalism, and Puerto Ricans who, while not William Howard Taft's little brown brothers, were nonetheless invaded into American World War I conscription. Narrowing POVs, myopic jargon, and oblivious tweets are colossal misuse of life limited by weather extremes, food deserts, flint water, and half-hearted renewable energy prep. Nonetheless, unless we fail to vote ourselves outside the box where conservatism and corporatism build our future on sand, we will again be the masters of our soul, with this caveat. If we persist in wallowing in the avalanche of 21st century republicanism, we the people could collude in a pack with the devil. Instead of being the beauty all life on earth would lovingly embrace, for a morsel of respect. So, shaking off forever the dust of gender inequality, income disparity, rainforest destruction, and animal slaughter for sport, let us cleanse the racist excrement smeared on our Statue of Liberty heritage by a Jim Crow immigration ethos. It's not just opportunists appointed to ignore American international history, lacking any appreciation for the sacrifice of tens of thousands of female American, LGBTQ American, Muslim American, African American, Asian American, Latino American, and Native American citizens who preserve, protect, and defend all, including Caucasians. It's unseen brokers hedging anti-American bets. From Estcourt Station, Maine, to San Diego, California, Americans deserve better than a pilot president washing his hands of American protectorates and territories. Our beauty is being both good Samaritans and good stewards, like first responders to domestic terrorism, firefighters conquering city and forest fires, Volunteers rebuilding Texas and Florida post-Harvey and Irma still insisting on more than a neophyte's bread-toss response to the punishing Maria aftermath in Puerto Rico, while beasts expose us to offshore drilling perils for profit. In sharp contrast, Countless nurses and caregivers, teachers and social workers, parents and police, doctors and lawyers, military families, even some bankers and lobbyists, who sacrifice daily to uplift, heal, and untether our sometimes beastly past for the potential of an enlightened, harmonious future, many bearing little resemblance to our pale-faced founding father's gender or sexual persuasion. Still, America... Beware corporate religious and political magicians who pledge to turn us against each other, disappearing both our beauty and prestige. 
like Walmart publicly proclaiming its new $11 minimum wage while quietly firing employees. Or now, television CEO Pastor Mark Burns whitewashing the darkness shaming American diplomacy, and Sarah Huckabee Sanders selling her soul for those devoid of empathy. Believing Trump is America's only elected beast is what fuels the imbalance between our past good and current ugliness, harassment and the harassed, and our habitual tendency to lockstep with short-term memory. October 1962, on the brink of nuclear war with Soviet Union, President Kennedy's primary concern for 13 days, a chain of command miscalculation. January 2018, for 38 minutes, Hawaii experienced a nuclear miscalculation, still believing duck and cover spares nuclear holocaust. Calling out foreign hackers and domestic hucksters attempting a hoax on our reason will vanquish foes to America's diverse beauty and expose corporate and congressional self-aggrandizement for the treason it is. A giving character aligns us with the integrity of all life on earth, thus preventing America's destruction by the braggadocious and morally bankrupt. Racism, sexism, and refusal to progress forward are the beasts that threaten our epiphany, haunt our good deeds, and deplete our finite existence. Second-class citizenship is a man-made infection, staining places of employment from migrant workers to Wall Street suites. However, even when losing our way to disarray, disgrace, and deception, a Time's Up and Me Too duo ushers in our ethical climate change, where women are valued and men listen. Once again, beauty warns, it's not the beast without, but within. We need purge. Thank you, and join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. (laughs) 